Praise the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Sorry for the uh, delay. Technology was failing me back there. Um, but it's, it's definitely a privilege and an honor to be before you. Um, like I say all the time, um, it's not something I have to do as far as preaching or ministering, now playing the bass. And it's something I get to do. It's a privilege. Um, I think we should, I, I believe we should all take anything that we do for the Lord, anything that we do, period, as a privilege. You know, um, PD was asking about work, and although we may not be totally satisfied with our jobs, it's a privilege to get, be able to get up and get, go to work because there's a lot of people that want to be in our place. And, you know, it's a privilege for someone to come up and preach. It's a privilege for you to be able to raise your kids. It's a privilege for you to be able to, be, you know, be in a, in a marriage with your husband or your wife. It's a privilege. And so I think if we take that perspective, I think we would um, be able to see um, how we can honor the Lord with everything that we do. Um, and so with that said, I, I, I thank God for this, this opportunity to be able to be used as his vessel, as his vocal piece um, this morning. Um, I thank Pastor D for, um, this is the first time I called you Pastor D, I usually call you PD, but um, for allowing me um, to, to speak to the people that he's, that he's been entrusted to. Um, and so without further ado, I don't want to take too much time. I'll just ask everybody by their heads. Um, Thank you, Lord. I honor you. I praise you and I love you, Lord, because you are great. You are awesome. Um, you are worthy of all praise. And Lord, um, we thank you for the cross. Lord, this, these past few weeks, um, I mean, not, not anything different from any other Sunday that we've been here, but these past few weeks, we've taken a special focus on the cross. And Lord, if we do not speak about the cross, if we do not hear about the cross, if we do not preach about the cross, everything we do is meaningless. Lord, the, the very source, the very base, the very foundation of our faith is the cross. Everything that comes with it, Lord, the blood, the, the, the sweat, the tears, the beating, the, the ridicule, the, 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 the harmful words, the piercing of the side, the nails in the hands and the feet, every single thing is an important part of our faith, Lord. So, Lord, this morning as um, we speak more about or we hear more about um, this, this cross and the importance of the cross in our lives and what happened on that cross, Lord, I ask that you take the words and, and, and thoughts of Alan that may be contrary to your word, Lord, and you throw them out, Lord. Let every word that comes out of my mouth be pure and holy and according to your holy scripture. Let me not attempt to fill in blank where you've intentionally left blank. Let me simply echo what you've already said through your scriptures. I pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. 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 So, the great heist. What if I told you that man has been working, has his enterprise, has his business since the beginning of time, and every generation has come has not only inherited the business, but also have put in their own work to earn the inheritance of that business? What I tell you that we wake up working on this business, we, we go to sleep even working on this business, we put in work 24 hours, seven days a week, and we have wages to be paid to us. But then someone who had no business, who never worked the way that we worked, who never had any inkling on, on what it means to be in an in in employee of this enterprise, comes around and right when we're about to get paid, they snatch the check. That's a fight. What if I told you Jesus Christ was that person? 
The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. From the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we have been working on receiving the wages of sin, which is death. So we've been working even when we're awake and even when we sleep. Our thoughts, our dreams are sin. Even Jesus says, you know, even a man that looks onto a, a, a woman with, with, with lustful eyes has committed adultery in, in, in his heart. So meaning even our thought bases are sin and we are to repent for our thoughts. That's why Paul says that I take captive every thought. And he instructs us to think on things that are pure, things, think on things that are holy, because even at the thought process, we sin. And so the wages that are, we are earning is death. But in Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin became sin, and snatched the paycheck away from us. Now, Brian, I would ask you if you were going to fight still. Because <laughs> in that case, steal the check. That is what happened. That is the, the great heist. I'll try to be a little, uh, little creative with the uh, title today. But that is the great heist that happened at the cross. Jesus, who had never sinned, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin to die for us, to take on the penalty that we deserved even though he didn't deserve it himself. What did we do to deserve death? Simple answer is to sin. But what is sin? And what is the importance of sin that it, that it causes such a great repayment that it needs to be paid? That the death of an innocent man on a cross is the only way that we can repay the offense that we made to our father. Let's first talk about God. God is a holy God. If we ask about the attributes of God, God is a holy God. God is a loving God, we hear. God is a caring God. He, he, you know, he's the creator. He's our savior. He's our, our father. He's our, our, our provider. He's our protector. But there's certain things about God, certain attributes about God we don't want to rest on because they are real. That God is a righteous God. I know we sing it in our songs. I know we, 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 we repeat it out of, out of scriptures. But for me personally, I was growing up saying God, God is a righteous God, but never truly understanding what righteous meant. I always thought, you know, I probably use my own logic, you know, he's never wrong, so he's right. So he's right to us, righteous. Yeah. <laughs> Get him. But that's not just what it means. By being righteous, that means when God says something is wrong, it's wrong 24-7, seven days a week. 27 already covers that. But anyway, 365 days a, uh, a year, that's 366 day on a leap year. Every single time you come to him, it's going to be the same deal. He's, also, he's a just God. It, it goes hand in hand. Is that if he says, what, what, there is no gray area with God. It's either it's right or it's wrong. God never changes. So we love to sing it and, and you are God alone when you're thinking about the good things, the blessings that he says he will bless you with. But when you think about that, he never changes, even in the aspect of the consequences for our sin. That's when it's hard pill to swallow. That when he says the Romans 6, 23, for, for the wages of sin is death. You can't come to him and try to cut a deal for him to change his mind. God is too holy for him to be in the same room as sin. See, a lot of us come in and we, we think that, you know, we could live a life that, that's kind of good on one side and then, and then uh, uh, intentionally and with, with a heart towards sin, try to live a sinful life. And God says, listen, you're not one foot in and one foot out. You're, both your feet are on the other side. 
I'm not talking about us struggling with sin. That's a different thing. There's a difference between struggling with sin and accepting sin. You, the difference is you can take a pig, clean it up, put perfume on it, put a nice little bow on it, put a nice little leash. You walk outside. The moment it sees mud, it runs right back to mud because that's its nature. But us, you know, uh, you know, I just got into the whole Jordans craze. But if, if I walk out in Jordans and, and I step into some mud, I'm immediately getting somewhere where I can clean off the mud because my nature is to keep the Jordans clean. See, some of us are saying we're struggling with sins that we're accepting, that we're okay with. You know, we, we clean it up. We make people think it looks nice. We, we got our nice little, you know, our, our suits and our, our ties and we have our nice Christian verses to give to people. But our nature, our heart is a heart that loves sin. That's different. But God cannot stand in the same place. That's why in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the Lord, he says he explains, you know, how he sees the splendor of his glory and his role filled the temple and the seraphims that are at his side. And immediately in verse five, his response is, woe is me from a man of unclean lips, because he knew that him being a sinful man did not deserve to be in the same room as the holy God. And so immediately the response, and I, this is a foreshadowing of Christ, that the seraphim runs to the altar that was there, takes a the hot coal and puts it on his lips. Says, what you have once called unclean has become clean. That coal, my brothers, my, that coal, my sisters, is a foreshadowing of Christ. That Christ takes what, where sin had left the crimson stain and makes us white as snow. So now we can come and we can approach the throne of grace boldly. Not because of anything we've done, because of everything he's done. So God is a holy God and he's a just God. So when he says that the wages of sin is death, somebody has to pay. God is not a God where, you know, ah, you know, I love you so much that I'm just going to brush this sin under the rug. No, because that would take away from his holiness. That would take away from his righteousness. He has to stand by his word. The Bible says that he holds his word over his very name. Masaru said it like this. He said, when, when God says something, he has to submit to his own word. That's why God, that's why we can't be playing around with what God said and what God, you know, promised us. We have to stick to the scripture because when we start putting words in God's mouth and then when he doesn't come to pass, we go and blame God. And God says, listen, I did not say that. But whatever I did say, the promises of the Lord is yea and amen. But don't make up promises and sign it and forge a signature to it and expect for him to come to pass. But when God says something, believe me, it is true. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He is the truth. He's not just telling the truth. He is the truth. We have to understand that not only does God have an amazing love, but God has wrath. This is one another hard pill to swallow. God is a God, not only of love, but of wrath. He hates sin. And so when sin is in the picture, he has wrath towards it. And so when we had committed sin, and I say we because we have all inherited from the first Adam, when we sin in the garden, there's a wrath that the Lord has that needs to be repaid. There is nothing that we, do, we could do, and, and I'm, I've moved on from, from God to now our, our offense to God, which is now the, the man portion, is that we have sinned against the Holy Father, and there's nothing that we can do that can pay it back. 
When Adam sinned in the garden, let me tell you the, the graveness of, of this sin in the garden. It wasn't just Adam and Eve were hungry. They just had a different craving. They just wanted to taste this fruit from this tree they weren't supposed to eat. But they knew exactly what was going on. Let me tell you why. Adam was already given the instruction. You have dominion over all the earth. You can eat of any tree. But the, of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So this tree was a reminder that although Adam had authority over a lot, he didn't have authority over everything. I usually use this example, you know, so uh, let me, before I get ahead of myself. So Eve comes into play. Eve is created. And so now Adam is, as the man, is, is the protector and the provider and, and the, the discipler, I guess, the discipler of Eve. And so I, I can imagine, you know, let's just, you know, bring it here, bring it home. You know, let's say, you know, you're younger and you're living with your mom and, and you know, you have this friend over. Maybe, you know, well, let's, let's make it a female friend or a male friend or whatever, wherever you stand. Um, male to female, female to man. So let's make sure we made that clear. Um, and so you're sitting around, you're like, yeah, you know, my, this is my living room. Like it's, like it's an episode of MTV Cribs. You know, this is my living room. You know, this, this, this per, Persian, uh, Persian rug here. You know, we, this, this is where we just chill, you know. And, you know, we got this dining room. That's where we be eating that filet mignon, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, y'all didn't get it. Filet mignon, filet mignon, not filet mignon. It was a joke. But anyway, so, you know, this is where we eat here. This is the, the refrigerator always stacked, you know, and all that. You know, look at you know, the paint. You know, this paint, we had it imported all the way from Russia because we had this color that America didn't have, so we had it here. And right in the midst of you talking, your mom comes from now upstairs and goes, hey, Alan, did you clean your room? All your confidence, all your quote-unquote swag is done. Because now it's shown that you have someone that has an authority over you. You're no longer the boss. And so when Adam is walking around the garden and says, ah, you know that big cat over there with the stripes? <laughs> That's a tiger. I named it. Um, you see that, that red thing that's hanging from the uh, tree? <laughs> Apple. Guess who? I named it. Not Steve Jobs. Um, so, you know, uh, this, these all these things. I, I named it. I, I, you know, I created, I, I named this, this snake here. You know, I call this snake. The only reason why we call it snakes because I call it snake because I'm the boss. I have dominion over all of it. And so now he it passes by this tree and maybe Eve goes, well, what about that tree? All the confidence of Adam is diminished. Because he has to remember that someone has an authority over him. And so now we get to the scene in um, Genesis 3 where they're at the tree. This is why I know it's not something simple as just eating the fruit. First of all, the serpent was not lying in what was, gonna, what, what was the intent or what was the result. He was not, not necessarily not, that he was not lying, but he wasn't trying to deceive them into thinking there was nothing. But he told Eve, he said, if you eat of this, you will be like God. God doesn't want you to eat this because you want to be like God. So meaning if they go and eat, let's stop and pause and we know the end of the story. But if they if she reaches for this fruit and eat it, it's because she wants to be like God. Now, let me even correct myself in that statement, because if you step ahead to verse six, when she does take of the fruit, it says she took of the fruit, saw that it was good and gave it to her husband who was with her. I remember when I was little, I used to make up these stories like, yeah, it's women's fault. She probably went, got the fruit, went back home, was like, Adam, I got this fruit and you should try it. And, you know, it tastes good. And, and you know, did her womanly things, you know, y'all females, y'all know. So, you know, it, you know to get, get him to eat it and kind of, you know, swindle him into eating it. But the scriptures obviously say that, I know y'all got jokes, it's okay, it's all right. I'm an actor, so it's all right. Um, he, he, he has... He was right there next to her. 
Now, on a sidebar, this whole men issue that we have in the church started from the garden. Because as a man, number one, he should have been discipling his wife and his wife should have known the rules of the land. Number two, even when she was tempted to go against the law, he should have stood in, in, his, in, her, in the gap and stood in front of that servant and said, you will not tempt my wife in my presence. That's a sidebar. I know the guys are going to probably jump me after service. But, <laughs> but Adam knew what was going on. They, it was nothing that it was, oh, I, I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't know this was going to mess up my relationship with God because the serpent was blatant with it. The serpent told him, it told them, both of them, seeing as they both were there, that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. You will be like the Most High. And there's a rapper that said it in his line, and he makes sense. He says, if you like the Most High, he's no longer the Most High. If this is the tallest building in Pescataway, and we build a building right next to it the same height, this is no longer the tallest building in Pescataway. So if he, there is the Most High, and he is God alone, and you become the Most High, guess what? The Most High is no longer the Most High. Adam was not satisfied with the authority that was given to him because he wanted total authority. And that's something that is apparent even today. We don't like authority. We hate authority. Most times if you say you don't like your job, the first thing you're going to say, I don't like my boss. My manager gets on my nerves. Even sometimes when you're really sitting down and you never heard someone's story, I'm like, yeah, my manager did this, and then you know he's going to have nerve to come and ask me how, where I am in my work. You need to mind your business. Um, that's his job. Because he needs to go answer to somebody, and he needs to make sure your job is done. But just, we, a lot of us just have issues with authority, period. Even in the church, people have issues with the authority of a pastor. The Lord has entrusted the pastor to do something with the church. And so now, I don't know what the pastor is doing, this, that, and the third. Guess what? He has been entrusted with the direction of this church. So if you're, either, you're either with him or you're not with him. But everybody wants to stay in the church and start complaining about the pastor. We have an issue with authority, and there's nothing new. So now man, because of the sin in the garden, has a debt that they cannot pay. Because the wages of sin is death. And so, guess what? If, if I have a bill to pay, and the key has a bill to pay, even if I go and say I'm going to die for Nakia, somebody has to go and die for me still because I have a bill still to be paid. So the only way that it can be paid is by someone who does not owe. Let, let's go to ex Exodus um, 34, verse 7. I'm going to get to Isaiah. Exodus 34, verse 7. Actually, let's, let's, let's start from 6. This is the part, this is the part where, where Moses um, asks to see the face of the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, if he sees the face, it'll be too much for him. And so he hides Moses between two, um, two, two, two stones, and the Lord is proclaiming um, himself to him. And he goes in uh, verse 6. says, Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Where I want to focus is on this. He says two statements that seem to be contradicting. He goes in verse 7, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, 
forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. And then the next statement he says, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So, Lord, if you're going to forgive the wrongdoing, how will you leave the guilty unpunished? Because in forgiving, I would think that the guilty wouldn't be punished. Right or wrong? And so we have this paradox where he's going to forgive the wrongdoing, but yet the guilty will not go unpunished. So meaning the wages of sin has to be paid out, but he's still going to forgive those who did wrong. And so now we say here, well, how are you going to do the same, the, both of those things at the same time? In steps Christ. The son of the, of the Holy Trinity, blameless, sinless, comes in and pays the price. He who knew no sin became sin so that we can have the righteousness of God. See, the wrath of the Lord had to be dealt with. It's not something where he could just be like, you know what, forget it. I'm going to act like it didn't happen because he wouldn't be God. But instead, out of his love, he chose to put his innocent son in our place to take on the punishment that we deserved. Isaiah 53. It says, who has believed what we have heard and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we were healed. We are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich men at his death. Although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of his anguish and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many. And interceded for the rebels. Do we see this chapter? That he was, he was bruised for our transgressions. That he, he was crushed for our, everything. He, was, he, was, he dealt with the punishment for our offense. So Jesus didn't just come to die as, as just this example of, you know, how to live a life where we just crucify. That's, that's great. That, and that's a great example. But that wasn't just the main thing, that, the main reason for the cross. God's love and God's justice met right at the cross. 
his love for us and yet his justice, meaning that the, the offense had to be paid for, met in one person, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That he loved us so much that even though he had to pay the price, he didn't allow us to be the ones to pay the price, but his innocent son in our place. This, this doctrine, this, this idea um, of, of Christ taking our place, honestly, um, there are some people, even in the Christendom, I, I guess, who don't believe it. Who cannot grasp the idea that, you know, uh, an, that Jesus Christ would come and, and take on a penalty in our place, our own penalty. And, and, and if you look in the scriptures, it all points to it. That chapter I just read, it, it's, it's blatant. That he died for our transgressions. He, he, was, he was crushed for our iniquities. He didn't die for his own cause or he didn't just die just as an example, but he died. He came on a mission. A price needed to be paid and Christ made himself to be the payment for that price. And that's why we can sing songs and, and even, you know, as we alter the, the lyrics, that we have come to know how much it costs because it costs the innocent death of Christ. And not to say there was anything wrong with the way Chris Tomlin wrote it, because I believe he wrote out of emotion that he would never be able to grasp it in, in emotion wise. But as far as the knowledge of it, we know it. Is that Christ was the cause for that on the cross of our sin on the cross. The concept of penal, this concept is called penal substitution. The concept of penal substitution is biblical and is an essential part of the gospel. If we don't get this right, the gospel isn't right. Because then the question is, what is the point of going through all that length of killing, you know, not to say kill, but, but his death? And yes, he was killed on the cross. It's gruesome as it sounds. It, he was killed on the cross. But even then, as gruesome and as deep as it sounds, it even makes the resurrection even that much deeper. He was murdered. He was killed. He was bruised. He was beaten. He was put on his cross bloody. Died on this cross in order for us to have life. If we don't get this thing called penal substitution right, we don't get the gospel right. You have to understand that, that although Christ took on human nature, his sense of being the son of God was unaffected. He did, he did the will of the father aided by the spirit. This thing was a work of God. This wasn't something, you know, when we asked, I remember a, a while ago, um, PD had asked me and, and, and another brother, uh, you know, who killed Jesus? And, you know, we thought Jews. And he said, no. He thought the Romans. He said, no. And then we tried to get deep and said, we killed Jesus. He said, no. He said, he brought us to Isaiah 53 where it says he was smitten by God. And in verse 10 where it says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Because God had to satisfy his wrath. But the thing that is amazing to me, and I, I may be jumping ahead, the thing that's amazing to me is that when we're angry at somebody and we have, you know, we're, we're, we're upset with somebody, we, we go to dealing with that person. You know, whether we don't talk to them, we unfriend them on Facebook, we don't follow them on Instagram, we, we pass by them, we don't say a word. But God, in his love, instead of dealing with the objects of his wrath, dealt with his wrath itself. Because he could have easily just obliterated us. He's God. He could easily say, you know what, I'm done with you. you. You offended me. You know, I made you to be this perfect create, creature. I gave you this one rule in the garden. You ate of the fruit. You know what, I'm just going to kill this and start over. But out of his love, 
He took what was broken. He took what was destroyed and made it new. And the way that he did that was by putting his son in our place to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. All per- and we have to understand in that, that it being a work of God, I, I remember when I was, I was younger, um, I used to think of it uh, as, you know, the father was upset. You know, he was like, I'm done with this. You know, uh, these, these people have, 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 you know, have sinned against me too many times and I'm about to destroy them. And like Jesus comes like, no, dad, you know, uh, don't do that. I'm going to go and I'm going to die on the cross and we're going to make it all good. And, and this, this back and forth goes and, and God, you know, the father says, you know what, go ahead and do it. But growing up and you understand, and if that's the case, then we're not talking about the trinity of, of three as one. We're talking about three different gods. But in the unity of the trinity, in the unity of the Godhead, this came to pass. All persons of the Godhead were in agreement of this way of salvation out of their mutual love for us. So this cannot be considered divine child abuse. And that's what some people look at it as. If we say that the father went and punished his son for our sins, then they look at it as well. And then you're calling, you're calling out divine child abuse. But it's out of the mutual love of the Godhead. It's not where one was reluctant to do it and the son was reluctant to do it and the father said, well, you have to do it. And, and, and it, was, it was out of the mutual love of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit for us that they chose to go this route. Let's see how this has been foreshadowed throughout the, the, the whole Bible. And the Passover, when we talk about the Passover, which was Exodus, in Exodus 12, verse 1 to 13, um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of breeze through it. But Passover was during the last plague of um, when Moses were, was trying to get the Israelites out of Egypt. And so God said, listen, matter of fact, let's go there so that we can. Exodus 12, verse 1 to 13. Exodus 12, verse 1 13, and it reads, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's households. One animal per household. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each person will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, animal, a year old male. You may, you may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the, of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat, eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. Do not let any of it remain until morning. You must burn up any part of it that does remain before morning. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed to travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you are to eat it in a hurry. It is, it is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
No plague will, among, will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So in layman's term, in, in, in light of what we're talking about this morning, that night, that Passover night, after the Lord passed through, passed through Egypt, every house either had a dead male or a dead lamb. So in those houses where the blood was on the doorpost, the lamb took the price of that, that firstborn male in that house. It was a foreshadowing of the lamb, the lamb, capital L, coming and to take the place of every male, every female who was in sin. Because there's coming a time where just like the Passover night, he won't be just coming through Egypt, but coming through the whole world. And because the blood of Christ is, is covering us who are believers, we will be passed over. So the Bible, is, this is nothing new. This is nothing that just came out in the New Testament. This is something that, that, that was, was already being foreshadowed before. Leviticus 16, they have this day, the Day of Atonement. And it's one day a year where, where in the camp um, they would take a, a goat, two goats. They would take one and they would, they would put their hands on their head and that would be a signifying their sins being transferred to the goat and they would slaughter the goat. And the second goat would be called a scapegoat, would be let free and taken and run out of the camp. This also was a, was a foreshadowing of Christ, was that number one, the sacrificer had to be purified and sanctified first. Number two is that the first goat was sacrificed as an atonement for sin. So that's a, a foreshadowing that Christ will be an atonement for our sin. And then the second goat was driven into the wilderness, which is that Christ now, as Christ's death on the cross takes sin out of the camp. Are, are you with me? So he dealt with sin by atoning for it and taking it out of the camp. Thirdly, we see the, 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 the example of Abraham and Isaac, especially in the case of, you know, this being a work of God where, we, you know, where Abraham finally has his son Isaac after so much waiting and now God comes to Abraham and says, I need you to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham, we don't see any struggle. We don't know if there was, but we don't see any struggle in the scriptures. See, Abraham take Isaac. And so Abraham, the father, takes Isaac, the son, to this mountain. And Abraham, the father, takes Isaac, the son, up the mountain. And Abraham, the father, takes Isaac, the son, and puts him on the altar. And Abraham, the son, and takes Isaac, the, uh, Abraham, the father, takes a knife and is about to sacrifice Isaac, the son, until the Lord comes into play and, and says, listen, we have tested your faith and we see that you are obedient and then provides a ram in the place of, of Isaac. But the key part of this is to remember that Abraham is the father as we're getting ready to sacrifice the son. And this is a foreshadowing that it is the father. Yes, and Peter, you know, even Peter said when he preached in the book of Acts was that he used the hands of wicked men to bring forth his will. The father was behind it all. Christ was the propitiation of God's wrath. Propitiation is another word for satisfaction. Let's go, through, go to a couple of um, scriptures. Romans 3, verse 21 to 26. Three verse 21 and 26, and it reads, But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, that is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So again, you see that God has, has Jesus is the propitiation of God's wrath through, and through faith in Jesus we have been counted righteous. So God showed his righteousness by still paying the price of sin. Because if he didn't pay the price of sin, God would no longer be righteous. God would no longer be just. You know, it, 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 you, you imagine um, you being in a courtroom and, and a loved one had, was murdered and you're sitting there and maybe the defendant has changed his life since, since and, but you still have a death in your family, that still has to be dealt with. So can you imagine the judge saying, well, you know, you seem like you're a little better guy. I'm going to let you off on this one. And you're sitting there understanding that something still has to be paid. God is not that type of judge. God knew the price had to be paid. But out of his love, instead of us paying it ourselves, he sent his son to die in our place. Let's go to Hebrews 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, verse 17, and it reads, Therefore he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We see there again that he was the satisfaction of the wrath of, because of the sins of the people. Let's go to 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2. It says there, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is a propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Again, John is, is, is speaking to those who are reading this letter and saying that I'm writing these things that you may not sin. But even if you do sin, there's an advocate there's a, there's, a, there's a lawyer, there's, there's someone defending us, there's someone that has, is standing in the gap for us, which is Jesus Christ, who has satisfied the wrath of the Lord. So that's why when, when, you know, we can approach the throne of grace, which is undeserved favor. We can approach the throne of grace, not because of anything we've done, but because before we've entered the castle or the palace, we've ha we have put on the garment of Christ. That's the only reason why we can approach the throne boldly. Because where sin had left the crimson stain, he has cleaned us and washed us white as snow. He has satisfied the wrath of the Lord. First John, same book, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. It says, the one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God demonstrated his love by putting his son in our place. He didn't have to. He would be right in being done with us. But he used that moment. And that, that's why I'm, 
even I'm remembering, uh, I think it was last year we went to a, a conference and the speaker, David Platt, was speaking on the sovereignty of God. And he brought up the instance where um, Israel, I believe that's when Israel was worshiping the golden calf and the Lord, you know, the Lord was was expressing his anger towards, you know, the people of Israel to, to Moses and about how he's going to destroy Israel. And Moses comes and stands in the gap and says, Lord, you know, pretty much in paraphrasing, give him one chance. You know, I put myself in, in their place, um, you know, pretty much pleading for Israel. And at the end of the conversation, the Lord relents and says, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll fall back in layman's term. He didn't really say that in the Bible. That's the gangster version. Um, <laughs> but in that instance, you will question, if God is sovereign, then how is it that he's listening to this mere man and, and adhering to his plea? Because if God is sovereign, he does whatever he wants, however he wants. Why would he listen to this man's uh, um, advice and go and take that advice as if this man is more wise than he, than he is? But through the sermon, and, and I, I wish I think we have the recording on the SoundCloud. If you if you have time, it's in the together for the gospel um, group. But through this, the sermon he explained how God's sovereignty had already planned for Moses to be the mediator between him and Israel. So where we think that God is changing His mind, He had already planned from the get go. So we ask ourselves, well, why did God allow, you know, Adam to go and eat? If God is powerful and God is sovereign and God is, you know, all knowing and, and God is able to change things. Why would he allow Adam to sin? And why would he allow us to sin? And why would he allow us to do these evil? Why would he allow, you know, the usual question is, why, why would he allow evil to enter the world? Because it's because of evil that he can now show his love. Because we had it all good. We would never really understand the love of God, but it's when we're in a position where we shouldn't be loved, and then he shows his love that we realize the greatness of his love. Do, do, do you understand? It's not until when you've done something wrong and you're in a place where you know you don't deserve anything and you receive it that you realize how great this love is. And so that's the reason why this thing is all orchestrated, and, and we never will understand the plans of God, but, but he, nothing catches God by surprise. The garden didn't catch God by surprise. The, the, the worshiping of the golden calf didn't catch God by surprise. It's all orchestrated in order for God to show his goodness. You know, I, I usually use this example. I think, I forgot what, what you were preaching on, but one of the points was that um, when we're looking at the, uh, the, the story of Job even, that God, in, in, in some ways, again, don't sound bite me and then run away and, and say something I didn't say, but God sometimes uses the devil for his own works. Let me give you an example. This is an analogy. Anybody knows me, I'm big on analogies. It's almost like you got this pit bull. This guy has this pit bull, and he knows this pit bull is prone to go wild. And so he has his fence, and he has his leash on this pit bull, and he, go, he lets the pit bull go. And if the pit bull, knowing that there's a chance that the pit bull may come and bite one of you guys, but he knows he is excellent in healing. And so he allows the pit bull to go free because the pit bull is not always, you know, a, a rabid dog. I know you're looking at me, Christine, like, you're crazy. But he's not old, but he has a tendency sometimes to go and, you know, be a little crazy. So, you know, this, this owner of this pit bull goes, let's go to the pit bull and sits around. And so the pit bull's running around, the pit bull's running around, and all of a sudden it gets in one of those modes and bites one of the people. But guess what? In that instance, that person can now show off as a healer. And I, anybody that I know that can show off is God. God has this, this way of setting up a stage and making things seem like it's impossible for him to show us that he is possible. 
Um, we, we look at the, 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 the story of Elijah and when he have, has, he's having this contest between him and the prophets of Baal. And, and when it's his turn to go and he's, you know, they're looking for fire to come down from heaven to cover this bull. And, you know, when it's his turn to go, before he goes, he does something that's very peculiar. He has them drop um, three times four buckets of water all through drenching the altar and the trenches that's around the altar, making it um, um, drenched in water. And some, someone would look at that and say, well, now you're making it impossible. Because it's one thing to get fire, but now you're drenching this thing in water. It's definitely not going to happen now. But not understanding that God was setting up a stage for him to perform. Because even in the midst of an impossible situation, he shows himself strong. And the story of Lazarus, when Lazarus dies, one thing that I learned is that um, the Jews back in the day, when someone dies, they give it three days before they actually pronounce the person dead. Because, you know, I, I'm thinking, in my own opinion, maybe it's because we didn't, they didn't have the medical advances that we had back in the day. And so, you know, sometimes you hear people, they go into coma, you're a nurse, I, I, you know more than me. They've been going into coma, they may not be really dead, and all of a sudden they come back like, oh, all right, you were dead, all right, back to party. Um, you know, it, it, it's... All right, whatever. So what happens is on that fourth day, that person is definitely dead. And so now, you know, the first thing that comes to Christ, you know, Jesus, is the person says, you know, he's sick. And so, you know, don't worry, that sickness will not be unto death. So now he's with the disciples. He's chilling. He's where he is. He takes about two or three days and then starts making his way to where Lazarus is. On the way there, now he gets the news that not only is Lazarus sick, but now he's dead. And so now the disciples are probably looking at him like, you're either crazy or you're a liar. Because you just told us that this sickness is not a sickness unto death, but now we hear that Lazarus is dead. And so when Jesus comes to the scene, ironically, it's on the fourth day that Lazarus has been dead. So meaning at this day, this is the day when the Jews have given up all hope. They've, he's dead. He's died already. The three days has passed now, and now we know that Lazarus is definitely dead, but not knowing that God was setting up a stage for him to perform. And the prayer of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 is very similar to the prayer of Jesus right before he calls out Lazarus. They're not praying, asking God to do it, but they're praying, God, listen, I know that you will hear my prayers, but it's more so for these people that they may see your glory. And so God allows these situations, God allows, you know, quote unquote, evil to enter this world in order for the stage to be set and for the curtains to open up and for him to perform. We won't know the depths of God's love until we get into such deep of a pit for him, his arm to reach us. By his sacrificial death for our sins, Christ pacified the wrath of God. This thing is deep. We have to understand that Christ is the Son of God, the sinless, the blameless Lamb of God. That knew no sin, that knew no effects of sin. And so we, you know, because we, we're living in a world that because sin has already entered the world, there are, there are situations, there are issues that are going on in, on in, this, in this world where we could say that these are effects of sin, us as believers who know the word know that, you know, things like death and wars and, and all these things that are, are happening are effects of sin. But Christ, the Son of God, who is blameless, who is sinless, does not have to deal with that. 
he experiences what we should have been experiencing from the garden if Adam didn't take from that fruit, Adam and Eve didn't take from the fruit, which was eternal love, eternal joy in the presence of the Father. But on the cross, God dealt with Christ as if he had been exceedingly angry with him and as though he had been the object of his dreadful wrath. This made all the sufferings of Christ the more terrible to him because they were from the hand of his father, whom he infinitely loved and whose infinite love he had had eternal experience of. Besides, it was an effect of God's wrath that he forsook Christ. This caused Christ to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was infinitely terrible to Christ. Christ's knowledge of the glory of the Father and his love to the Father and the sense and experience he had had of the worth of his Father's love to him made the withholding the pleasant, the pleasant ideas and manifestations of his Father's love as terrible to him as the sense and knowledge of his hatred is to the damned. They have no knowledge of God's excellency, no love to him, nor any experience of the infinite sweetness of his love. Christ had to go through, literally had to go through hell that he did not deserve on the cross. We, we, we read scriptures like, you know, in, in um, I want to say, uh, it's somewhere in the Old Testament, actually many times where God has promised that he would never leave nor forsake us. That's not just something simple that he just promises, but it's because there is one that will come that he will leave and forsake in our place. So that's why, you know, when I was younger, um, I've heard it said, you know, well, Jesus just felt forsaken or he felt that he was left alone and that he really wasn't forsaken because God wouldn't forsake. But because of the sin of the world, it's not just sin of one man, but the sin of the world, the cost of that sin is to be forsaken by God. So he dealt with the punishment he did not deserve on a cross in our place. And this is, again, I'm trying to tie it back to the title. This is what he stole from us. I mean, if it would be one thing, if it was blessings, that, you know, it was great things, and he stole from you, like, yo, Jesus, you kind of messed up. We kind of want to experience that. But do you see the depth? And he knew what he was stealing from us. And this is what makes us love God even more. When he knows, when we know, when we understand that he didn't have to do it, but he did. That... Um, he took on death. Death is a penalty of sin, sin that he never committed. But he came and defeated death, but had to submit himself to death before he could defeat it. This is in, in uh, Philippians 2. Let's run there real quick. Two verse five. It says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to a penalty that he didn't incur. He chose to take on the penalty. You know, we chose, you know, the, the, the offense that brought on the penalty. I'm sure if, if the sermon just said, you know, if you eat of this, you're going to die. We would never eat it. But because of the, the benefits they were looking for and the cost of the benefits became death. But Christ came and went head on and went straight to death and said, I'm going to humble myself to become obedient to this penalty that they incurred 
in order that they don't have to. And that they is we. He died and took our, our penalty. I don't know how many times I can say this, but that he, could, he took our place. When we look at the, the gruesome, I, I wish I, I, I printed it out, but um, during a Good Friday, someone posted something on, on Facebook, and it was a medical, um, uh, pretty much, I guess you would call it synopsis, and it just broke down everything that God would, would you know, that Jesus was going through on that cross, from the, the breathing that he would have to involuntarily lift his body up in order to breathe because the way he was positioned, his lungs wouldn't be able to do it on their own and, and how, you know, different parts of his bodies would fail and how his legs would give up. So now his whole upper body, is his torso, is, and it's just this gruesome description of what he went through on the cross. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, I should have went through that. I, I wish I had it to really read it because it's, I'll, I'll probably post it on, on, on the King, KLM page, but it, it's just... It really brings to reality that this is something real. He didn't just get up there, yeah, nails and feet. We talk about that all the time. He got pierced on the side, died, boom, it's over. No. But there are, there's a process of death that comes. He didn't just die instantly. It was a slow and agonizing death. And when we, I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm definitely going to, because it really opens our eyes to the seriousness of our sin you know, as Speedy preached a couple of weeks ago, the ugliness of our sin and the beauty of God's love for us. They said he was beaten to the point of no recognition. <laughs> that's, that's, that's crazy. He, even when, the thing is, we don't even realize it, that even when, you know, Pilate brought him before um, the people of, of, of the, the Jews and the, the high priests, and, and, you know, it was a day of, um, I believe, I forgot the name of the day, but uh, where every year they would, they would choose between two prisoners, free one and, and you know, uh, punish the other. And so Barabbas comes, and he's this thief. He's a known criminal. The Jews don't like him. That's why he's in, in prison. But they hated Christ so much that when he puts these two people before, because Pilate, if you read, Pilate in some way is trying to get this guy out of this situation. Because he's, you know, he's playing, he's, he's in politics, literally. He's trying to play politician. If he lets this guy go, the Jews are going to hate him. He's going to have a problem with Caesar because these people are going to revolt. But at the same time, he himself, and even his wife, his wife's like, let this man go. Because I have this dream and it's, it's, it's bothering me. But Pilate knows if he lets this man go, he's going to deal with some issues. And so now he brings over Jesus as one of the last resorts. Like, listen, this is my last chance of trying to let this man free. You have Jesus here who, you know, who you say proclaims the king of the Jews who I have not found any fault. And you have Barabbas who is this thief, who is this mongrel, who, who has done all these crimes, who's deserving of where he is. Pick who you want to let free. And they said, free Barabbas. Do you understand that the, uh, all right, the name Barabbas, Bar means son of, Abba means father, so son of the father. So meaning that the criminal, the one who deserved to die, the son of the father, us, was pardoned while the one who was innocent, who committed no crime, died in our place. Do you understand that we are Barabbas? Barabbas is not just this guy we just look at and, and you know, uh, uh, we just like, oh, wow, yo, they really hated Jesus. But no, we are Barabbas. We're the ones standing side by side. And I, I love how the Passion of Christ um, uh, 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 pictured it because at the moment where they chose Christ, Barabbas looks at Jesus with his face, like, kind of like, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> like, like, almost kind of like, 
he looks at him for a moment and then he goes crazy. You know, he, if anybody's seen the movie, he, he goes in par parties with his friends. But he get he, this moment of, you don't deserve this. Even when you talk about the, when he's on the cross, and I forgot which, which account uh, captures this moment, where, you know, the two thieves and one thief is, you know, talking to Jesus and the other one is kind of like bad-mouthing Jesus. He says, don't you see that we deserve to be up here? He doesn't. Christ was innocent, but yet took on the guilty plea for us. Another example I used a couple years ago with the Trayvon Martin case. Man, we knew Zimmerman was guilty. All the evidence, man. Me and myself, I remember I was sitting at the dealership. My car was getting fixed or something. I was watching the trial. And, you know, he was, he was, you know, he was adamant about saying, you know, I never knew about the standing ground law and all this. And so now they finally got clearance to let his teacher, um, his professor, go on the stand. And so the professor goes and they ask him, he says, was standing your ground one of the things that you guys discussed in your class? He said, yes. And guess what grade that Zimmerman got in his class? An A. So now he's lying. All the evidence pointed to Zimmerman. But when the verdict came out, Zimmerman went free. And immediately when I heard that, I remember, I think I was down here. It was an event. Oh, no, I'm down, well, not down here. Down in Willowboro. And I remember I was hearing it was on the radios, on CNN. Everybody was posting on Instagram. Everybody was having this outrage. And I was outraged as, as well. But I thought about it and I said, the one who was guilty was, was presumed innocent. But yet one day, the same thing will happen with us. And we, where all the evidence points to us, and we need to be locked up, and we need, to, we need the penalty of death, that the judge will look at us and presume us innocent. But not because of a fallible justice system, but because of an infallible Christ dying in our place. That's the point of the cross. The great heist is that Jesus stole death. The wages for the work that of sin that we have been doing from, from the moment, time, well, a little bit at the time began when the, the, the garden, the sin in the garden, and from that business not only being inherited, but not only that, but we put in our own work because not only did we inherit iniquity, but we committed sins in ourselves. So we have a right to this earning, and yet Christ came and snatched the paycheck from us. The cross is not just a simple symbol that we, we hang on our chain and we put on our cars and we put on our bumper stickers in order to say that we're Christian. But the cross is the very source of our faith. Without the cross, we'll be lost. I didn't mean to rhyme there. I'm not a rapper, but yeah. <laughs> but we would be lost. There would be no one to pay the sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Christ delivered us. So now we can look boldly like in 1 Corinthians 15 and say, oh, death, where is your sting? <laughs> because now death is only is now submitting to us as a passageway for us to see our father. I that the whole rules changed in the garden. Death was real cocky. Like, oh, yeah, now we and I got a couple of victims coming towards me. And then Jesus comes into play and comes and dies and death realizes you're not on the list. You ever seen like a movie, I'm trying to think of what movie I'm trying to think of, where this person has this, this list of, of people and, and he's ready for these people, but then somebody sneaks in. And that person who sneaks in is the hero, the protagonist of the story, and he destroys what the villain had set up. And so th this, this, this death is looking at his list and he sees and this guy walks by that he doesn't recognize, says, you're not part of the list. And Jesus Christ kind of, you know, I'm putting a movie scene here. Jesus Christ just looks back real cool like, 
I know. Boom! Defeats death. Yeah, I know. Y'all know me, my vivid imagination. But that's what he did. He went, he submitted himself to death in order to destroy death. So now when we come to death, death is looking like, I can't even do nothing to you. Go ahead, go. Your father's here. He is now submitting to us. The enemy is defeated. You know, I've said this before, maybe a while ago, but, you know, we have these, these sayings that we're stomping on the devil's head and, and you know, we're, we're, we're defeating the devil. Let me let you know something. That's not our job. The devil is already defeated. He was defeated on the cross. The devil takes advantage of those who don't understand that. So he's walking around. See, in the garden where, you know, um, you know the Lord is pronouncing the judgment because of the, the sin, he says that, you know, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You know, you will strike his seal and he will crush your head. He's talking about one seed, and that's Jesus Christ. We don't have the power nor the authority to crush on the devil's head before he's defeated. But now that he's defeated, we have authority over the scorpions and the serpents and all that because of the first victory, which was Christ. So when the devil or the enemy or, or, or attacks are coming, just keep in mind, he's already defeated. He's just trying to, you know, make his name for this time, but he knows his time is limited. Christ has defeated death on the cross. And that's why the song, you know, says death could not hold him down. He is the risen king. The resurrection was a stamp of approval from the father saying this was my work and it is finished. Going back again to, to the point I was saying about his, his, this, this new feeling or this, this unfamiliar feeling of Jesus. It says, on the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before, all sense of his father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from him. And in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of great spiritual darkness. This is the, the son who did not deserve any of this, but us who do. Penal substitution is an essential part of the gospel. If we don't understand that Christ's death on the cross was a payment for a debt that we incurred, It'll be meaningless. Again, Christ didn't die on the cross for us to have a symbol for our faith. But Christ died on the cross for us to have a basis for our faith. That we have been saved. We have, I, I think the, the word has been used so much, it's become its own definition. But literally, we have been saved. We have been rescued from sin. <laughs> and not just from sin, but from the wrath of God. God saved us from himself. In the same way that God is a God of love, and like I said in the beginning, he's a God of wrath, and that he loved us so much that he dealt with his wrath, and we can now be reconciled to the Father. We can now say we have relationship, we can now call him Abba, Father. It was by no light you know, um, doing, it was by no cheap price that it was paid, but not only did Christ bleed, but he bled to death in order for us to call the Father, Father. For those who are called not his people to be considered his people. 
I don't know any joyful or way to end this sermon, <laughs> but let's end in meditation on the fact that Christ's death on the cross paid the price and was in our place in order that we can be reconciled to the Father. And now we can experience the joy and we can experience the love and we can experience the splendor of his glory and now we can look forward to eternity with him. That we can now joyfully proclaim, Maranatha, Maranatha, Christ come quickly. I almost said it in Creole because I'm used to saying it in Haitian churches. But, but we can now, we can look at that in joy because without Christ, we're looking at that in dread. We would dread the, 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 the day of judgment. But now we know that there is someone who has cleaned our slate. Oh, come quickly, Christ. Come back quickly. It's an amazing thing. The love of God for us, that he would sacrifice his only begotten son, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And not just everlasting life, but everlasting life with him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, if I can be loose with terms, Lord,